Our scripture reading this evening is Isaiah 52, verse 13, through the end of Isaiah 53. It's to be found on page 779 in your pew Bibles. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing. Father in heaven, we pray to you as we open up your word that you would bless it, that we would be able to apply it to our lives. And what application do we desire to make except to praise and thank you for all that you have done? May we see you clearly, and may, Holy Spirit, you, you show how clear the word is. Reveal it to our hearts that we may stand in awe of you yet again, as we often do every time we open your word, we stand in awe of who you are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed, we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Thus ends the reading of God's word. 
Brothers and sisters, one of the most beautiful gospel accounts in the Bible occurs in the Old Testament here in Isaiah. It is a beautiful account. It's amazing and majestic. And yet it's something that couldn't be fully understood until Christ actually came and did this. You can imagine the confusion you would have had reading this as an Israelite, not knowing what was going to happen, not knowing that this was referring so clearly to Christ. You see, it's confusing because in the very same verses that it talks about victory and triumph, it talks about what seems to be defeat and death. In the very same verses that seems to say this is, this is the strength of God just revealed to his people, it's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Of all these seeming contradictions, and yet it is an amazing song. There are the suffering servant songs in Isaiah that reveal that there would be the suffering servant of the Lord, and this is the last and the greatest of them. The clearest expression, the most beautiful. And we see how clearly this points to the account that we have read in Matthew of the crucifixion itself when our Savior kept silent while afflicted. This text makes outrageous claims. And in the very same breath, it seems to contradict itself by what it reveals. Victory claimed before what appears to be defeat. Extraordinary things done by the man who seems to be quite unremarkable. The profound conundrum, we could call it. Profound mystery. In Luke, Jesus quotes from this passage right before he goes to the Mount of Olives portraying himself as the suffering servant. He quotes from verse 12. He says, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus chose us. This is written about him, that he must be numbered among the transgressors. In fact, that he must become the greatest transgressor. The very embodiment of death, of sin, of corruption. That is what this man of sorrows must become. We see that as we go through. First, we see a mysterious victory. That's how the song opens up. As the other suffering servant songs do as well, this song opens up, Behold my servant. This is the Lord speaking. Behold him, my servant. And this song opens with that statement of triumph or victory. And so the song is itself beginning and fronting with its victory. This is what's coming. And then in the next verses, it seems to be more defeat that is described. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And that's how the suffering servant song begins. Exaltation. Now, of course, we know what this means. We know that, yes, he will be exalted. And yet, in the context of Isaiah, they did not know this. That this expression, exaltation being lifted up, would come in this this strange way, a mysterious way. And we see that this true result of Christ's sufferings is triumph. But then we go on to read and describe what this triumph looked like. Verse 14 starts really opening up this imagery. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind pretty big language. What is it saying? They're saying we were astonished at his appearance. His appearance was so marred, we actually had to ask ourselves, is this human? 
This marred man, this isn't the way he began. This is what happened to him. His, his, his appearance is no longer human. It's, it's not even human semblance is what the verse says. His form is beyond that of children of mankind. That's how low this suffering servant has gone. People of the day looked at him and said, you've got to be kidding. What is that? What a pathetic sight. Is that a man? Certainly a man of sorrows. The next verse says, So shall he sprinkle many nations. We've gone through Exodus 24. We read about what that means to, to sprinkle. To sprinkle with the blood of the covenant. To take blood, that is, the sacrifice, and sprinkle it over for atonement as it cleanses the vessels of the temple and the people themselves. Blood of a covenant. That is what sprinkled over what? We see it's sprinkled over the blood of... This blood is sprinkled over many nations. Gentiles? That's what this is saying? That that this blood of this man of sorrows would even be one that's sprinkled over the nations themselves? You see how this this victory is mysterious. We don't quite understand it. We, We misunderstand it, or at least the original audience would have wondered and questioned, what does this mean? This man of sorrows and yet sprinkles the nations with blood. So in the very same context of a marred man beyond human semblance is the idea of atonement to nations. Gentiles sprinkled with blood. And so there's this mysterious triumph as the song begins. And then we see an unjust verdict. Or is it? So with a question mark. Is this an unjust verdict? Add the question mark there. What is this text saying? Chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Notice that imagery. Who has believed what we have heard from him, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What's the arm of the Lord? The arm of the Lord is the mark of his strength. So where has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is the very strength of God. This is the imagery of God flexing his arms, showing forth his power, Well, what is it? Verse 2, a man who is like a young plant in dry ground. Are plants, young plants in dry ground, are they, they give us an idea of strength? A young plant that doesn't have enough water in the midst of a cracked, dry ground, does, does that scream the strength and arm of God? You see the mystery? This is the flexed arm and the power of God on display in in this young plant in dry ground. That's what this man of sorrows, that's what the suffering servant would be. He'd be a little little plant sprouting through the cracks in dry ground, and you would say, well, that's not going to last the day. That's the imagery. And then we see in the second half of verse 2, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. To those who encountered him on earth, as the next verse will say as well, they despised him. He was, frankly, he was a nobody. That's what this is saying. He was unremarkable in their sight. There was no majesty in his appearance. There wasn't beauty to draw men to him. You could call him, as we might say, a Joe Schmo, an ordinary guy, He was just a man, maybe an ordinary man, or perhaps as this text says, we could say he was really a less than ordinary guy because he was despised. So you see, the verdict they're passing, 
The, the audience, the verdict, they're passing on this man is to say, this is a nobody. It's an unjust verdict. They don't understand what's going on. It's misunderstood. They don't see the power of God at display. They can't. They don't see that this is, in fact, the very strength of God on display, saving sinners through suffering. Yes, indeed, flexing his arms because he is wiping away the stain of sin on all his people through this, and yet the people of the day pass a far different verdict. Misunderstand it. He's this run-of-the-mill guy. Notice the pronouns here. He had no form or majesty that we should desire him. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Who, who isn't esteeming him? The people, the readers. Though the, the people of God, they're not esteeming him. This is, of course, written in the time of Isaiah. This is, this is years and years, hundreds of years before Christ was there, and he's describing that generation. This is what they would say. Despised and we esteem him not. The speakers are the ones who pass him by. They rejected him. These verses are saying that this man was so downtrodden, so sorrowful, so full of grief, that God's people hid from him. This is when you're walking on the street and there's someone that scares you. You walk over to the other side. This is when you, I don't want to associate with that person. That's, that's the way they're describing this suffering servant. He's so unsavory. Don't make eye contact with him. We despised him. We rejected him. In fact, we esteemed him as one judged by God. People of the day esteemed him as one judged by God, one cursed by God. So they shied away. Really, this text from Isaiah is going out of its way to say one thing about the suffering servant. He was ridiculous. Pathetic. That's what it's trying to say. That's how despised he was. Yet the people missed it. They misunderstood what was going on, and they took him to be a nobody when he was, in fact, the very servant of God himself, sent by God. They didn't get that. His humiliation was misunderstood. The verdict they passed on him was one that they didn't understand. We see that in his humiliation. They saw him as God's own displeasure was being poured out from him, and so they, they just accused him of being an accursed wretch. And the next verses seems to support that. You see, on the one hand, this was an unjust verdict that they didn't understand him. And then on the other hand, this was a just verdict. That's what we see, a just verdict. Verse 4 says, Surely he has, been, he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows. He was smit, we consider him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. The estimation of the people is in that way that he is this cursed man of God, and that's why we can say in one sense they had it right. In one sense, they were spot on. Verse 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. And so someone was accepting a sacrifice, someone was accepting what the suffering servant would do. 
He was a sacrifice. He was a curse. That's what we can say. We can, we can clearly see, well, this suffering servant is God's own servant. They misunderstood that. And yet they said, he was stricken by God, and he was. He was even account, accounted forsaken by God, and he was. Verse 6 shows how those whom the suffering servant came to are the very ones who abandoned him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And then read this, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was a man of sorrows, bearing the weight of sin, and God was the one to strike him and smite him. Even our text says it was the Lord who crushed him. Counting him guilty. That's the way he appears. This is the language of the scapegoat. You've heard of this in the sacrificial system. The one bringing the sacrifice or the priest would lay their hands on this goat, and it was the, the symbolic transferring of sin, and, and symbolically it was the goat then that became the bearer of the man's sin. And so the goat was either pushed out of the camp, and eventually it was killed, destroyed in the wilderness, or sacrificed, and it was, it was dead, bearing the sins, transferred to the scapegoat. Well, this is the man of sorrows. He's a scapegoat. Everything's been transferred to him. We see the imagery of these animals and their sacrifice. Well, animals are only a picture. Only a picture of what is required. Animals can't make a conscious decision to bear it. It's symbolic. It takes a man to pay for human sins. It takes one willing to suffer for them to bear it. Here the suffering servant takes upon himself the iniquity of all. Verse 7 says he was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Why didn't Christ speak? Why didn't he open his mouth? Wasn't this the, the, the greatest example of injustice, of injustice being done and committed? Yes, on one hand it was. Sinclair Ferguson, though, gives a good explanation of this, of on he had opened not his mouth. He says, one of the most impressive things about the Gospels is that at no point in Jesus' trials does he issue a single protest about the injustice of what is happening to him. Not once does he stand up and say, that's, that's wrong. I didn't do that. That's a false accusation. Not once. Ferguson goes on to say the reason he doesn't protest the injustice being committed against him is because he understood that what was happening to him was the due process of the law of God against sin bearers. Jesus is coming into the presence of God, having gathered up all our sins to undergo the due process of law, and he has nothing to say because he's pleading guilty. See, that's the, on the one hand, this verdict is not unjust. It's not unjust on God's side. On the human side, this, uh, this is. This is wrong. They're putting an innocent man to death. As we read, Pilate shouldn't have done this. The religious leaders shouldn't have done this. It was wrong. And they bear that shame. They bear that guilt. We bear that guilt as, as man who did this. And yet, the other verdict that was being passed by God was just. And in that way, Christ did not open his mouth. What does God's word say? He had become a curse. Christ had become sin. And so for God to crush sin is 
just. So this man of sorrows, marred beyond even being a human anymore, did not open his mouth but was silent because he pled guilty. That's the language here. He opened not his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He didn't protest it. He went willingly. Here's the profound truth about this suffering servant. He was that pathetic because we are. He became so low, so ridiculous, because that's exactly what fallen man is. That pathetic, that ridiculous, and it took him bearing that shame to save them. Isn't this why he said before going to the garden, I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors? For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Philippians 2, verse 6 and following says, Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Is this not why he was crucified on a tree, a cursed death by God, showing that he became that curse? Jesus' silence was an acceptance of what he came to do. This is why he was tried and condemned by the authorities of the day. They all found him guilty. Every court that convened when Jesus was being crucified, every court that convened found him guilty. He went before the religious leaders and they said guilty. They were wrong, but they found him guilty. And then, symbolically, we can say he was religiously guilty because of the sin he bore. And then he goes before the civil rulers, he goes before Rome and Pilate, and he says, he's innocent, but we'll kill him. We'll pass the sentence as if he's guilty. He's guilty, though innocent. That's what the civil rulers said. And in God's own heavenly court, the one true one that was knowing what was going on, he was bearing the sins, and God said, of his own son, guilty. A man of sorrows. Verses 8 and 9 repeat much of what's already been said. And then verses 10 and 12, it concludes the song, and we see a majestic reversal. Verse 10 opens yet again, affirming that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. In fact, it even shows that the suffering of this servant was a guilt offering. But verse 11 shows why. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This is a summary of the gospel. One commentator says, this is a description of justification itself. One of the fullest statements of atonement. First, we see the servant knows the needs to be met and what must be done. Two, as the righteous one, my servant, he is both fully acceptable to the God our sins have offended and has been appointed by him to that task. Three, as righteous, he is free from every contagion of our sin. Four, he identified himself personally with our sin and need. Five, the emphatic pronoun he underlines his personal commitment to this role. It's he who did this. He chose this. And six, he accomplished the task fully in bearing iniquity and in being the provision of righteousness. That's what this suffering servant song says. And look at the final verse, verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, 
He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is exactly what Christ has done for us. And this is hundreds of years before it happened, and God's saying, this is what will be done. This verse is similar to the way Philippians 2 ends, where it says he did all this. Christ emptied himself in this way, but what did he attain? The name that is above every name, that at the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth. You see, the way the suffering servant song begins and ends is triumph and victory, and it is. Seen in the suffering that he bears, becoming and having the name above every name. And he experiences a massive amount of reversal in this song. We see that at the end. I'm going to go through this quickly. Mostly, I just want us to see what was said about him earlier is reversed in these final verses. He experiences this massive reversal of fortunes. He who had no descendants, in verse 8, will see his offspring, in verse 10. He who was stricken, in verse 8, will now prosper, in verse 10. He who was dead, in verse 9, will come alive, in verse 11. He who was unjustly condemned, in verse 9, will be satisfied, verse 11. He who was despised and rejected, in verse 3, will become the center of a great throng, in verses 11 and 12. And he who was a helpless victim, in verse 7, will become a triumphant victor, in verse 12. This is unanticipated. This is surprising. This will cause the nations to be in shock. They wouldn't have guessed how the story would end, that this pathetic man of sorrows would become the ruler and king of all things. Acts 8 describes an encounter. Philip encounters the Ethiopian eunuch who is reading from these verses from Isaiah. This is what the account says. Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Victory and triumph reign God's own powerful flexed arm is portrayed in Christ. Victory is achieved. The man of sorrows justly and unjustly condemned is raised up. God raises him up and accepts his substitution for us as people. That's what we need to see. We need to see that this is a description of salvation itself. It's a description of, yes, the crucifixion, but of all that the crucifixion means. It's a description of what God did. Who, after all, is this one who becomes so pathetic that humans, fallen man, look and say, pass by that one, reject that one. That's God. That is what he has done. And as Jesus said, even as he went to the cross, 
this scripture about me has its fulfillment. And on the cross, he did say, it is finished. The man of sorrows, oh, what a name. That sacred head wounded is our very Savior, Lord. Let's bow to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we turn to you. Lord Jesus, we turn to you. And Holy Spirit, we come to our Lord through you. We pray to you and thank you for what you endured. You bore shame the like of which we will never know. You bore the sins that we have committed, and you did it silently, accepting as what was your due, what we had done. You took it upon yourself, and we praise you. We praise you in seeing on this Good Friday, why do we call it good? Because we don't simply remember the sadness. We remember the triumph. Just as this song in Isaiah goes back and forth between sorrow and grief and triumph, so do we when we look back. We are sorrowful. We are grieved to see what you endured, and yet in the same instance we see it is your true glory. And we praise your name. We give you thanks for having forgiven us, for having become a man of sorrow so that we would not. We pray this in your great and awesome name.